Welcome to the Ravages History Podcast. In 59 BC, Gaius Julius Caesar was heavily in debt and badly needed a way to pay it off. Caesar is probably the most famous of the ancient Romans, and his story is of a dictator who destroyed the Republic. But today, that's not the story I want to tell. Instead, I want to talk about what he was doing immediately before his famous crossing of the Rubicon and war with the Republic. I'm not going to get into the politics of the time. Just properly explaining what was going on in Rome with the Republic and all the players involved would be an hour-long episode all on its own. Despite what Caesar wrote about the campaign that's about to begin, a campaign that he portrayed as being a preemptive and defensive action, pretty much everyone today agrees that the two real reasons were to pay off those massive debts he'd managed to build up and to boost his political career. Now, the Romans were scared of the various Gaulish tribes and they never truly exercised the demons when Brennus led an invasion of Italy some 350 years earlier defeating the Romans in a battle called Alia and sacking Rome. The city was rebuilt and came back stronger than ever, but the Romans ever since had been afraid of the Gauls and the barbarians in the north. And 300 years after the first sack of the city, just 50 years before Caesar arrives on the scene, Italy had been invaded from the north and saved only after several bloody and costly battles led by Gaius Marius. Today we know about the Gallic Wars thanks to Caesar himself, who wrote a series of books called Commentarii di Bello Gallico, or Notebooks about the Gallic War, which, despite being written by Caesar, is also written as a third-person narrative, and it stands as the primary source for most of our knowledge on the events that took place. It's divided into eight books, though the last one was written by someone else after Caesar's death. So what do we, and by we I mean the Romans, mean when they say Gaul? Well, Caesar says that Gaul isn't a country, it's more of a geographical label that consists of modern-day France, Belgium and parts of Switzerland. The region is split into three separate peoples who are always forming and breaking alliances with each other and fighting over bits of land. These are the Belgae, the Aquitani and the Celtae. And despite the almost continuous fighting between the tribes, their borders don't change much, and Caesar gives the areas that these tribes are found in. The Belgae occupy northern Gaul, opposite Britain, to the lower Rhineland, where the Aquitani occupy southern Gaul, from the Garonne River along the Atlantic coast, south to the Spanish Pyrenees, and finally the Celtae, who live in the middle section of Gaul, extending from the Atlantic Ocean east to the Rhone River. Caesar believed the bravest were the Belgae, but he goes on to say that even their warriors were no match for the courageous Helvetii, which were a tribe of the Celtae who were rugged frontiersmen and hardened by continual war with the Germans. The Romans also held territory in the region, in what is modern-day southern France, following the curve of the Mediterranean, bordering Aquitania and Celtae territory, including the Helvetii tribe. After talking about the various tribes in Gaul, Caesar then writes about Orgatorix, a prominent man in the ranks of the Helvetii, who has the ambition of becoming king, not just of the Helvetii, but of all Gaul. He manages to convince the tribe that they are stronger warriors than the other tribes, and puts together a plan to first expand their territory, and then wage war and conquer all of Gaul. 
Orgatorix then goes on to persuade two powerful chieftains of other tribes to follow him and the Helvetii, with a plan to seize the kingships of their respective tribes, allowing them to join forces and launch their war against the rest of Gaul. But Orgatorix is discovered, arrested, escapes and dies before being recaptured. But despite his death, the Helvetii complete their war preparations and burn their own strongholds and villages with just a three-month supply of food for their march, burning all the grain they can't carry. The reason for this is so the Helvetii have nothing to return home to, so they must fight as hard as they can, or they will lose everything. On their march, they manage to convince three neighbouring tribes, the Rarakai, the Tulungi, and the Lutobrugi, to join them. Now they must march through lands belonging to yet another tribe, and the name of all the tribes involved can get really confusing here. So, so far, really all you need to know is that the tribe the Helvetii, along with a few others, are marching on a tribe called the Alobrigis, who had just become subjects of Rome. The Helvetii believe that the Alobrigis would grant them passage through their lands or could be compelled to let them through. The border of the territory is the river Rhone near Geneva and that's where the Helvetii will begin crossing. Now in Rome, Caesar learns of the plans the Helvetii have of marching through the lands recently conquered by Rome and decides to head to the region. And when he arrives, he orders the bridge crossing the river to be destroyed. In response to this, the Helvetii leaders go to meet the Romans and tell them they wish to march peacefully and request for Caesar's permission. But the Romans have a long and uncompromising memory. Caesar reminds them that nearly 50 years ago, the Helvetii had killed the consul Lucius Cassius and routed his army. If you don't know what a consul is, it's kind of like the president or the prime minister, but there are always two of them and new ones were elected every year. So Caesar had a serious problem with the Helvetii for killing their president 50 years before and had no intention of letting the Helvetii march through the territory. He tells the leaders to come back later, about a month later, for his answer. But he already knew his answer and he was just buying time. In that time, he takes all the soldiers he has and orders them to build a massive wall, 16 feet high and running 19 miles from the Lake of Geneva to the Jura Range. As we get further into this story, you'll see that this is classic Caesar. He loves building massive, technically very advanced, yet only temporary structures to show just how dominant the Romans are as a force. So the Helvetii get their answer when they return. A massive, imposing wall is as clear a message as one can give. Caesar announces that Roman custom means they can't grant them permission to march through the Roman province. The Helvetii try a few times to cross the river, but are easily pushed back by the fortifications. Now the Helvetii have one more choice, a second route, a much more dangerous route that leaves them exposed to ambushes. But they get permission from another tribe to march along that second route unmolested, in return for hostages. If you remember from our first podcast, we talked about hostages in the Greek world. It was the same here in Gaul and across the ancient Mediterranean. Caesar eventually learns that the Helvetii will take the other route and realises there is a danger to the furthest reach of their provinces in the area. The Helvetii army, hard up on supplies, will be marching past a Roman region that is entirely undefended, that's rich in crops. 
So he changes his focus, handing over the command of the river to a man called Titus Labinus, and returns to Italy to assemble a massive army of five legions in just seven days. He then marches the new army out north, crosses the Rhone and begins chasing the Helvetii. But now the Helvetii had crossed through the territory safely, emerged on the other side and began attacking the Aedui, a tribe who were friends with Rome. The Aedui and other tribes in the area turned to Rome and began begging Caesar to help them before they had nothing left but burnt ground. Caesar now has a reason to attack the Helvetii and agrees to help. He's already pursuing them, and his scouts soon tell him that three quarters of the Helvetian troops have crossed the modern-day river Saône, north of Lyon, with the final quarter preparing to cross, but they are laden heavily with those supplies we talked about when they first left their own territory. Caesar seizes the opportunity and immediately launched a surprise attack against that quarter that were yet to cross the river. Personally leading three legions, Caesar easily defeated and destroyed the Helvetii on the east bank, with the rest of the Helvetii unable to do anything but watch. A few survivors were able to flee into nearby woods. Caesar writes that it had taken the Helvetii 20 days to get those three quarters of the air army across the river, and then he ordered the construction of a bridge across the river Sound. In just one day, the entirety of Caesar's army is able to cross over. Now, as you can imagine, this shocked the Helvetii, who immediately sent emissaries to discuss peace terms. After some serious considerations, Caesar agrees to peace with the Helvetii, demanding hostages as a show of good faith. He also insisted that the Helvetii pay a sort of reparation to the Aedui, the tribe allied to the Romans that they'd just attacked. But the leader of the Helvetii, Divico, rejected the terms offered by Caesar, saying basically a request for hostages violates ancestral practice. It is the Helvetian custom to receive, not offer, hostages. A day after rejecting the terms, the Helvetii packed up and moved camp. Caesar's 4,000 cavalry were sent to follow them, but they somehow managed to get involved in a battle they couldn't win, and after losing, quote, a few men, end quote, they managed to break off and return to the main Roman army. This boosted the Helvetian confidence. Back with the Aedui, the Romans didn't get their promised grain for the troops, which was supposed to be being supplied by the tribe. Far away from the Roman territory now, and low on supplies, Caesar had good reason to worry. They gave him excuse after excuse, and eventually Caesar calls a meeting with the Aeduan chiefs, where he complains loudly, reminding them that Rome undertook the war largely in response to their pleas for aid. There he learns that Aedui were betraying him, and one of the leaders, a man called Domnorix, had been trying to position himself to become the king of the Aedui. With the presence of Rome, all his plans began to fall apart, so he wanted rid of them. It's not just holding back the supplies he's resorted to. Caesar also learns that it was the Aeduan cavalry troop led by this guy that had been the main cause of that Roman cavalry defeat earlier. He had also given the Helvetii permission to move through the territory that caused the Romans to chase them in the first place. Now, Caesar is famous for his leniency, and he really begins to show it off here in the Gallic Wars. Domonorix had a brother, Divicaicus, who was loyal to Caesar, and so Caesar forgave Domnorix. On the whole affair, Caesar writes that he is being pardoned only for his brother's sake. Domnorix is then released, but he's watched. 
Having gotten to the bottom of what the problem with the Eduai was, he was finally able to go and get his supplies. So his army broke camp and began marching. But the Helvetii, emboldened by that victory against the Roman cavalry, decided to turn the tables on the Romans and began following them, harassing their rear guard. So Caesar sent his cavalry to occupy the Helvetii, while he took his 7th, 8th, 9th and 10th legions and put them on the foot of a nearby hill, with his baggage train at the summit. Then, about halfway down the hill, he placed the 11th and 12th legions. He organised his men at the foot of the hill in a standard triple line and waited for the Helvetii to arrive. When they arrived, those legions stationed partway up the hill hurled pillar, which were a type of javelin, down on the Helvetii, which halted their assault. Caesar wrote about how the enemy was quickly hampered because their left hands were useless due to Roman spears piercing their overlapping shields and pinning them together like a massive chain. Finally, they did manage to fling their left arms free of their spear-stitched shields, but they then had to fight unprotected. Pretty soon, they were exhausted and retreated to a hill about a mile away. On that hill, about a mile away, is their baggage train. Now remember, the Helvetii had destroyed everything back in their homeland, and only kept what they could carry, so their baggage train was their entire civilization, and the Romans were chasing them. But as the legions pursued, two more tribes arrived almost out of nowhere to support the Helvetii with 15,000 warriors. These new warriors opened up a flank against the Romans, but Caesar, thinking fast, sent his third line against the new tribes, while his first and second line continued to go after the Helvetii, who, after seeing 15,000 fresh reinforcements smash into the Roman flank, stopped their retreat, turned and met the coming Romans. After the sun had gone down, well into the night, the Romans finally broke the Helvetii and their allies, capturing their baggage train and camp. Caesar notes that nighttime proves to be a friend to the Gauls, and some 130,000 enemy escape. But he knew where they were running to, another region controlled by a tribe called the Ligones, and he sends advance word to the tribe warning them that helping or feeding the Helvetii will merit punishment. The Romans don't follow the Helvetii straight away, instead spending three days tending to their wounded men and burying their dead. The six legions of Caesar's numbered 50,000 men, plus extra auxiliaries, while Caesar notes that the number of Helvetii, including the extra 15,000 allies, brought their numbers up to 368,000. Though this was their entire civilization, of that there were an estimated 90,000 warriors. Caesar lost around 5,000 men either killed or wounded, while the Romans killed or captured 238,000 Helvetii. Back north, the Ligones listened to the warning given by Caesar and refused to help the defeated Helvetii, forcing them to return and discuss surrender. Caesar writes that the Helvetian deputies travelled to him with tearful pleas for peace, and so he orders them to return and wait for an answer. Then, after arriving in his camp, he orders arms, hostages and deserted slaves to be collected, telling the Helvetii to go home while ordering that the Alboroges give the defeated enemy sufficient food, since they had no crops at home. He also orders the Helvetii to rebuild the towns and villages they have destroyed. Remember, the Alabroges were the tribe who were already under Roman control back at the beginning of our story. Despite this being a victory for Caesar, it wasn't the triumph he wanted and needed to pay off those debts. He needed something else. 
but luckily for him, more trouble was brewing in Germany. A few new tribes need to be introduced. First, the Sequani, who have kind of been a part of this story, but we haven't actually named them. The Sequani control the region that the Helvetii had to cross at the beginning of their campaign after being unable to get through Roman territory. Next are the Suebi tribe, a Germanic tribe led by a king called Ariovistus. Now, these two tribes had made an alliance years before Caesar had even gotten involved with the Gauls, with the Sequani requesting help from Ariovistus in fighting the Aedui. Ariovistus was victorious against the Aedui in the Battle of Mage Tubriga. His reward was land, which he settled with 120,000 of his own people. But it had been worse for the victorious Sequani than the vanquished Aedui. Ariovistus, a king of the Germani, had settled in their territories, taking a third of their land, which Caesar says was the best in the whole of Gaul. On top of that, Ariovistus was now ordering them depart from another third, because a few months before, 24,000 men of another Germanic tribe, the Harudes, had joined with him, and space for settlements needed to be provided. Another Germanic tribe had joined Ariovistus, and even more demands for even more land from the Sequani was made to settle these new allies. This demand concerned Rome because it could have left Ariovistus and his Suebi tribe in prime position to take the whole of Sequani territory and ultimately attack the rest of Gaul. Now following his victory, Caesar was congratulated by most of the Gallic tribes and arranged a general assembly where they could all meet him. There they expressed concern over Ariovistus's conquests and hostages he had taken. During the meeting, Caesar notices that the Sequani were standing silently as part of the tearful group that begged for assistance, and asked why they were so silent. But the Sequani remain silent. And Divacaiacus has to explain that their plight is even more serious, and they cannot risk making a comment because Ariovistus lives within their borders and controls all their towns. Caesar confronts them, saying that it would be a disgrace if Rome did not aid its troubled friends. After dissolving the convention, he thinks about the situation and realises that the Aedui, often cited by the Roman Senate as friends, are German slaves and have been forced to give hostages to them. He concludes that this is a disgrace to himself and the greatness of Rome. Divicaiacus demanded that Caesar defeat Ariovistus and remove the threat of a Germanic invasion. Caesar not only had a responsibility to protect the long-standing allegiance of the Edui, but the Gallic request afforded Caesar the perfect pretext to expand his intervention as the saviour and not the conqueror of Gaul. This is all, of course, how Caesar painted the picture and how he wanted people to see him. This was all a mask, a cover, for him to go a-conquering. But of course, there was a problem. Back in 59 BC, the Senate had declared Ariovistus a, quote, king and friend of the Roman people, end quote meaning Caesar could not declare war on the Suebi tribe. Caesar immediately sends deputies to Ariovistus, and there is a little back and forth, with Ariovistus questioning what business does Caesar have in a territory that Ariovistus has secured by conquest. Eventually, Caesar gives the king an ultimatum, telling him he must stop bringing men into Gaul, return all the Aedui hostages, give the Sequani their freedom, and finally, not make war on or harass the Aedui. Caesar tells Ariovistus that if he meets all of these demands, then he will remain a king and friend of Rome. 
but if he were to refuse, Caesar would be forced to take immediate and decisive action. Caesar at this point is really going up against the Senate, but he says that as governor of the province of Gaul, he is authorised to protect the Edui and other friends of Rome. Also, these terms were given because Caesar knew that, being a warrior king, there was no way Ariovistus could accept this deal. And indeed, he replies saying that, as of the victor, he is only taking his rightful spoils from the vanquished, and also tells Caesar that the Romans govern their conquered peoples according to their judgment, and without need of third-party interference. He goes on about how his rights are being blocked, and he shouldn't have to answer to Rome for defeating a people who openly went to war with him. Thanks to the rugged and hard area where these Germans live, constantly fighting threats from all around them, their warriors are superbly trained, and unlike Caesar, the Germans are undefeated. By the time the reply from Ariovistus arrives, that other Germanic tribe that joined Ariovistus is starting to fight along the borders of the Edui, who complain to Caesar. Further north, another Gaulish tribe, the Trevari, report that a hundred clans of the Suebi tribe, encamped across the Rhine, are attempting to cross. These two incidents were all the justification Caesar needed to wage war against Ariovistus, and he gathered some supplies and started marching to his camp. Three days into the march, Caesar learns Ariovistus is preparing to attack the large town of the Sequani, Vesontio, which was, quote, well fortified and rich in troop supplies, and it is a natural geographic stronghold, end quote. Ariovistus was just three days' march from the city, so Caesar orders night and day forced marching, arriving before the Germans and garrisoning the city. Now, remember when I introduced the Gauls at the start of the story, and I told you they scared the Romans? The Germans were a people very similar to these Gauls, but even more scary. Caesar writes about the effect this fear had on his soldiers, saying, quote, Roman troops visiting with Gauls and traders hear tales of incredible German skill, valour and brutality, and panic spreads among the peoples. There are tears and lamentations, and many wills are written and signed. Officers with slight experience begin offering excuses and beg to leave. All of this incites fear in even experienced soldiers and their commanders, and, in defence, those who wish to maintain a brave front declare that they do not fear the enemy as much as they fear the narrow passes and great forests en route to the enemy, and the possible lack of food supply lines." End quote. To try and combat all of this, Caesar holds a meeting with his officers, who have questioned his intentions, and he reprimands them, but also try to console them saying that he reminded his men that Rome had previously defeated the Germans. The Helvetii had defeated the Germans, and the Romans had been beaten by the Helvetii. Ariovistus only conquered Gauls who were exhausted by a long war, and his surprise attack was based on cunning strategy against inexperienced natives. He says for those who disguise fear with the excuse that there isn't enough food, the matter is being sorted. When he is finished, he announces that the camp will move in the early morning hours, and that even if no one else follows him, he still intends to march with his faithful 10th legion. You can really see just how much of a genius this man was. These are not the soldiers of the Republic of old. They weren't farmers called to serve in the legions. By now, these men are professional soldiers who care a great deal about being seen as good, loyal soldiers of Rome. And now Caesar is saying, because of all this talk, you're showing me you aren't good soldiers, and I'm going to just take one legion. A legion who haven't been complaining or questioning me. 
He's not reprimanding them or punishing them. No one is being tried with treason or anything else like that. He's simply saying they aren't good enough to fight alongside him and other real Roman soldiers. To the honor-crazed Romans, this was worse than any other punishment they could have been dealt out, and the effect was dramatic. First, the men of the 10th Legion really let Caesar know just how much appreciation they had for his trust and praise. A massive morale boost for them it was. Second, the rest of the men in other legions were falling over each other to praise Caesar and tell them they support him and do not question his plans. While all this has been going on, Ariovistus changed his plans, knowing he couldn't take the town now garrisoned by the Romans and changed their route and destination. Caesar followed him in an attempt to cut him off, and when the two armies were about 20 miles apart, Ariovistus sets up a meeting with Caesar. The deal struck for the meeting included not allowing infantry to attend, only cavalry. But Caesar didn't have any true Roman cavalry. All his cavalry were Gauls, but he wanted to be surrounded by his own countrymen. Ariovistus knew this and knew he'd be isolating Caesar, but Caesar instead mounts members of his devoted 10th legion onto the Gallic horses. This would lead to the 10th's nickname, the Mounted Legion. At the meeting, Caesar tells Ariovistus the benefits of remaining friends of Rome and the consequences of making them an enemy, before telling him the previous ultimatum still stands. And from the reply, you get a real feel for what kind of king Caesar was confronting here. He said basically that Ariovistus, after enumerating his own outstanding qualities, replied that he crossed the Rhine at the Gauls' request. The settlements and hostages were taken with the Gauls' consent, and the tribute taken was a customary right of the conqueror. He had not warred with the Gauls, yet all of the Gallic states had joined forces against him, and he had defeated them in a single action. If they wished to fight again, he would fight them again but now he believes they must be content to pay the customary tribute since they weren't making war on him. And he goes on to say, if tribute and hostage agreements are altered as a result of Rome, clearly Roman friendship is a hindrance, not a help. Regarding the additional German emigrants, he explains that they are only for his defensive protection. He has, he insists vehemently, occupied this section of Gaul, and the Romans are at fault intruders objecting to a judgment other than their own, which is sometimes something they cannot tolerate. Ariovistus further reminds Caesar that the Aedui have not always helped him, and he suspects that Caesar's friendly protection for the tribes is just a pretense, since Caesar wants to send Ariovistus back across the Rhine. Ariovistus wants undisturbed possession of Gaul, and to gain that end, he will reward Caesar as well as fight for him, but to remain will invite war and Caesar's murder. Ariovistus says that he has been contacted by messengers of Roman nobles and leaders who would regard Caesar's death as a favour. Naturally, Caesar counters these arguments, but is interrupted when, despite the fact that they are at a parley, Ariovistus' horsemen began throwing darts and stones at the Romans. Caesar orders his men not to return fire, since he doesn't want the Germans to have any chance to accuse him of breaking the peace pledge. During a second parley that Caesar didn't attend two days later, Ariovistus took the Roman negotiators prisoner, and then over the next few days moves his camp in a position that cuts the Romans off from their supply lines. Caesar was eager to get Ariovistus to launch an attack against him on unfavourable ground, but just couldn't get more than a few cavalry encounters and some small skirmishes. But German prisoners are captured, and Caesar has them questioned over why Ariovistus won't attack. They tell him 
Ariovistus will not fight a decisive battle before the new moon, because the prophetic German matrons have forecast defeat until then. With the new moon, they have said, will come German victory. Knowing that the Germans didn't want to fight, Caesar wanted to force them into a battle which would hopefully lower their morale, so the next day he assembled his allied troops and advanced his legions towards the Germans, forcing Ariovistus to form battle lines. The Germans, to try and prevent any retreat by their own men, build a line made up of the supply wagons and carts along the rear of their entire battle line. Inside the carts were the tribe's women, who were imploring their husbands to save them from Roman slavery. Caesar writes in detail about the fighting, describing exactly what happens. So when the fighting began, the enemy and the Romans rushed each other, so quickly that javelins couldn't be thrown, and sword fighting began immediately. The Germans quickly bring up their phalanx formation to withstand the assault, but Caesar writes that their move wasn't wise. He describes how many of the Roman troops leaped onto the Germans, seizing their shields and stabbing them, causing the German left wing to quickly collapse. But their right wing was more heavy, and had the Roman left wing in some difficulty. He then makes special mention of a man called Publius Crassus. With the Roman left wing faltering, Crassus led his cavalry into a charge to restore the balance. Then, after the reinforcement and prevention of a possible break in the Roman lines, the enemy's army broke, fleeing non-stop for 15 miles to the Rhine River. A few Germans managed to cross, including Ariovistus, but the rest were captured or killed. Caesar then freed Gaius Valerius Procilius, the emissary who was being held in triple chains. The escaping Germans warn the advancing Suebi tribe across the Rhine of their defeat and convince the Suebi to return home. Rhineland tribes, thirsty for blood, see the Suebi panic, chased and killed large numbers of them. During this last summer, Caesar had just 35,000 soldiers with him, but had gone up against two enemy populations that had several hundred thousand people in each, and one. With winter setting in and the campaign season coming to an end, he moves his troops into winter quarters in Sequani land. In the next part of Gallia Espicada, the Belgae, a people occupying what is pretty much modern-day Belgium, decide to preemptively attack the Romans. Also in Gaul, rebellions break out, and one tribe in particular, the Veneti, a seafaring people, cause the Romans some real problems. Don't forget you can follow us on Twitter, we're at Ravages Podcast, or you can email us on ravagespodcast at gmail.com.